I'm Tom Kennedy and welcome to Uncensored Stories. Today we're welcomed by Avishai to talk about Taoism. Thank you for joining us, Avishai. Hello, happy to be here. Why don't we kick things off by talking about the history of Taoism, uh, where it originated and why. Okay, and why. That's an interesting way to start off. Uh, where does anything originate from anything, right? So Taoism... <laughs> Heavy question. So Taoism, let's give just like the most brief overview of history. So Taoism is like a philosophical slash religious um, belief system, if you will. And it originated in ancient China. So you have roots of it going back 3000 years ago, but you can actually see the first concrete version of Taoism in the book by Lao Tzu which is known as the Tao Te Ching, and that was about roughly 2,400 years ago. It's really hard to say exactly the year it uh, was published. You know, it's not like the day when you have data of everything. Even the author, Lao Tzu, which is uh, accredited as being the author, nothing is known about him. It's like one of these mysterious characters of history. And as we'll maybe talk a bit longer, it actually fits really neatly with the theme, the theme of uh, Taoism, which is actually not, not uh, being pompous, not you know, showing off, not being, uh, um, you know, not accepting fame in any forms whatsoever. And even the fact that Lao Tzu isn't known by historians or even during his time, uh, actually embodies this philosophy quite well. So it's, uh, you, you see it start off in uh, the age in ancient China called the Warring States period. So that's, it started roughly in 5 BCE, and it ended with uh, the reunification of the Chinese Empire in the 3rd BCE. And the thing is, this time is also, um, not by coincidence, the same time as the 100 schools period. So during this time, there were many, many, many philosophers and thinkers and, you know, smart Chinese old men, you know, that people like to quote on the internet, just like talking and, and, and you know, arguing over the right way to live and the right way to um, run the state. And actually Tao, the term Tao, as we'll get to, get to later, it actually means the way. Tao is the way. That's like Chinese for way. It also has a lot of other meanings, especially within Taoism. But the most basic translation is the way, and that was the main focus of different philosophers. Uh, most, more, more famous maybe than Lao Tzu are Confucius and Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War. Some people are familiar with that. So, um, yeah. So that is basically just like the most, most uh, brief, brief overview about Tao. And at that time, at that time was there a predominant religion uh, in, in China or in the Eastern world? Okay, so that's a good question. So actually, that is um, exactly the thing that, although there were, uh, you know, basic acceptance of certain traditions, looking, looking at uh, the old dynasties of the past, like the past from, you know, the 5th BCE back to 1000 BCE, uh, generally speaking, there was nothing but united the Chinese people because the countries were divided or many, many different small countries and every single, uh, let's say, prince and leader of these communities wanted to reunify uh, the kingdom. And because to, in the terms of the Chinese, it's to reunify everything under the sun, everything under the sky, everything under, under the heaven. And that's exactly why, because there was no unifying philosophy during this time, that you see 
again, a hundred schools of thought emerging and just debating endlessly about what is the right way to lead. And actually, so after, you know, amazing, amazing works have been developed and amazing debates and, and written texts, uh, what we see in the last 2000 years, maybe until um, uh, the rise of communism in China is what happened, what ended up happening is like this, uh, you know, hybrid of these different philosophies, namely Confucianism, uh, Taoism and legalism. And that's actually, legalism is like this, um, we can get also to the other philosophies, but legalism is this more fascist dictatorship, practical guide of running the state and Confucianism is more ritualistic, more uh, um, talks of the individual and his position and uh, maybe responsibility within society. And Taoism is like this carefree philosophy for both intellectuals and, and uh, people just, just uh, more interested in very more abstract, uh, if you will, um, concepts. And actually Buddhism also, also emerged with that in time. So after the war in states period, um, around the second, uh, second uh, uh, so about, a hundred years after the birth of Christ, right after Christ, you see a Buddhism joining uh, this mix, and that is like the philosophy uh, that again we know in popular culture has been traditionally Chinese, right? That you have a smart old man saying all these like weird anecdotes which you don't really understand, and that is actually the origin of that. So just maybe to connect it to some some other modern concept, Taoism, because it's a little abstract. So Taoism is actually the yin and yang symbol. Yan symbol we know in tattoos and t-shirts and whatever uh, that is actually Taoism in origin and also um, the from Star Wars you know Star Wars uh, there's always talk about the force you know the force what is this force yeah the force with with everything the universe that's 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 basically the Tao that is basically the concept of the Tao really yeah was that so inspired from Taoism it was directly inspired by that and actually, after I, I would, I would, if I have one goal in this conversation is to anyone listening, uh, enjoying it, uh, to just pick up the Tao Te Ching, and read that book because it's extremely short. It's just eighty-one chapters, uh, and it's like every chapter is basically a poem. Eighty-one chapters. Yeah, eighty-one pages. chapters. Yeah, but it's it's every chapter is a page, so it's like it's poems basically. Okay. So it's extremely short. You That's can really finish it. You can really, you read a poem, you meditate on it a bit, but uh, basically uh, you, can, you can finish it in one sitting and it's an amazing, amazing uh, uh, reading experience just because it's, and it's one of the most translated books in the entire world, um, though people are not very familiar with it. And again, it, it has been translated. Is that sort of like the, the, the Taoist manifesto, if you will? Yes, that is the canon. That is definitely the canon, the Tao Te Ching. There's another, maybe a little, maybe less influential, but still extremely, extremely uh, important and, and, um, and shaping of the Taoist tradition. And that is the Zhuangzi. And that is uh, maybe, I think that is actually a more, more interesting uh, book, but we can also get into that later. And that also really shaped uh, what is Taoism, what it means. Okay, cool. So if we get down, um, get down to it, what, what are the core beliefs of Taoism? Mm -hmm. What are the main, the main belief structures? Okay. So I, before I say anything else, I want to say that what I, the reading I've done and my research interest, if you will, now in the, again, this war in states period. So 
the texts themselves and not as much as how Taoism ended up being later the centuries because it became a religious uh, belief system, uh, which I'm not uh, familiar enough. And it, it's actually, it's quite different from the texts themselves. So I, I will focus just on the texts. Uh, and, um, and maybe and those texts are concerned with it with at the time of its conception. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you can see, so the core beliefs, if you really boil down to that, that is a very difficult question. Uh, but I, I guess, and that when I, when I did my, my research and my, my thesis, what I wrote, I basically tried to, to find out exactly that. And it was difficult because the book itself is really uh, hard to read. First of all, it's ancient Chinese, but also it's full of um, paradoxes. Full Not of the it. easiest reading. What? <laughs> Not the easiest reading. <laughs> no. So I had to use that. So I, I, don't, I don't know uh, ancient Chinese. I used Hebrew translation and uh, an English translation uh, just, just to make sure I have different perspective. But anyway, um, it's, it's, it's full of paradoxes and oxymorons and it's, it's contradictory even from chapter to chapter in, in the same chapter. So it's, it's really hard to boil it down. But basically, in my, my belief um, and, and what the, a lot of the literature talks about is that uh, the main themes, if you will, are, are connection to nature. So the Tao is this, um, it's, it's like the, the Star Wars Force, it's like this uh, concept, if you will, principle of guiding the universe, which we have no ability to understand fully with our you know, normal cognitive rational capacities. It's not something we can talk about and just understand it. We have to actually live by nature's rules. So nature is, I think, the the most important part of this uh, metaphysical system. So <laughs> understanding what is nature. So nature is water. You know, water has this um, quality where it just exists. Right? Water just floats down wherever, wherever it, it needs to because physics, you know, it just goes with the flow, right? So Taoism is really a lot of times you can, you know, compare it to water just as this, and the book does that. It just goes with the flow just because existence allows it to. And this is actually the main uh, call of Lao Tzu. And uh, what it's the basic message I would say is for anyone reading this, but it was also a political uh, essay. It was meant for different leaders during this time, right? To how to best behave a moral character of a leader uh, and so on. So it's basically uh, telling you to be like water. Do not act more than you should understand that, uh, you know, the, all this human, uh, uh, how would you say, obsession with wealth, with power. It's all so, so, uh, you know, wrong in the basic sense, just because it's a human idea. We, we fall, and, and this is how it connects to language. Language is one of the most basic, uh, most important uh, um, topics this book discusses, and how this uh, book, this concept of a Tao, because it says Tao is something that is, again, not, we cannot really access it with rationalizing about it, with thinking about it, with talking about it. So basically, it says conversation, a written or spoken word, has no use when we engage with the ultimate truth of the universe. Right? So it basically says uh, that all this, again, and connects to this part about gaining more and more knowledge, more power. This book, you know, just negates everything uh, that was believed during this time, but even today, like a lot of how, you know, our basic axioms in the Western world today lies on this principle of the logos, the spoken and written word, 
And, and just the fact that by speaking more, by understanding more, by conducting more research and science and understanding the world again, uh, um, verbally, <laughs> we, we're going to get to this, you know, truth somehow. But this uh, belief system, this uh, philosophical system basically uh, says that, you know, what makes you think that words uh, uh, and just continuing to speak will get you to this point of ultimate truth. And this, the, the truth is nature. Nature is much more close to the truth than anything we can talk about. We can talk for days and years, but nature is the ultimate truth. It's the universe. It just exists. And by, you know, just like surrendering ourselves in this passivity like water, we, we may have access to what is, what is uh, the right way to live the right Tao. Okay. And again, this is, uh, <laughs> tell me if I'm going a little fast and it's a little confusing, but, no, 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 no. but so basically this is, again, it's going against uh, different Tao's, different uh, belief systems, different philosophical systems of Confucius, of Mozart and other Chinese philosophers, which again, they, they said, okay, there's a right way to live. I'll tell you about it. And then they write about it. Right. And, they say, this is the Tao, this is the Tao, this is the Tao. The way this book, the Tao Te Ching, starts off with is basically the way that can be spoken of is not the eternal way. Okay, so uh, the Tao that can be Tao is not the eternal Tao. So it basically negates all the verbal, verbal human, human uh, cultural constructs of what is the right way of living and says the moral authority is not any human. It's not Confucius, it's not Mozart, it's not any any anyone ever it's it's nature it's the universe it's the Tao something beyond us which we cannot access just by uh, talking about it and even the book because it's uh, it's so short actually embodies this philosophy the less you speak about it the less you discuss it uh, the more you can understand it so that is definitely uh, uh, what I love I love this book so much for and again I really recommend anyone interested to read it's just like this extremely minimalist approach to life, to politics, uh, to language, you know, because we, I don't know about you, but uh, from my impression of you, you also uh, believe that in order for us in, in our quest for truth, um, our method is uh, linguistic and scientific. If fine? Definitely, for sure, yeah, yeah. yeah? And, and again, that sounds- Absolutely, yeah. It's, it sounds plausible, right? Because, you know, you don't know something- but from. So, so that was obviously written in a time where China was plagued with war mm -hmm. and conflict. You only have to look at the art of war to understand that. How does a pacifist promoting uh, ideology like Taoism deal with military conflict? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, that, that's a really good question. And um, some some speculate that this book was. Uh, wasn't really meant for conquerors. It was more geared towards the smaller countries, which still were leaders. Uh, but the winning strategy for them at the time was actually to be more passive, to be more pacifist. Because if you're a small country and you're facing this much, much bigger one, um, your, your policy should probably be to lay low a bit and uh, not engage in, in conflict and, and, you know, and just... Uh, realize your limits basically so practically speaking there are definitely uh, situations where a country should be have policies which favor itself um that being said it's uh, it's a good point and i don't think that's that's one of the reasons that if you if you want to call it who won 
the, the this um, you know battle of ideas. It Philo how, philosophical war. Yeah. So yeah. So you could say that uh, when it comes to that time, it didn't twin like legalism and Confucianism. So legalism was the one to reunite uh, all of the you know the uh, the everything under the sky, all the countries. Uh, but and it was Confucianism which actually laid the foundation of most of Chinese history. Uh, but Taoism survived just because of these ideas that really uh, resonated with uh, the intellectual uh, elite, uh, mostly in, in China. And yeah, that's why I don't think this is a really. <laughs> if you, if your plan is to conquer the world, I wouldn't advise reading this book. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned before that Taoism is um, can be considered both a philosophy and a religion. Mm -hmm. What is the line between a philosophy and a religion? And when did Taoism cross that line? Mm, that's, a, that's a really good question. Uh, and even a lot of scholarship actually debates the same thing just in Confucianism, even today. So, because we're trying to, you know, Western scholars are looking at China and they're trying to like sort of see if Confucianism is a religion or not. And the same goes for Taoism. And it's really confusing to us because we are used to, you know, mostly the monotheistic religions, which, you know, there's a God and uh, there's moral behavior that guides us. So it's really, it's really um, I guess, a, a game of how do you define religion versus a philosoph philosophical system. I would personally say there's something about a system which makes something a religion as opposed to just philosophy. Right? So there's one thing to write a book about how, how to live life or what is life. Right? And that could be even, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, just like the Bible, right? It's also a book. And I think by itself, there are definitely parts of it which are just philosophical um, for the sake of it or just full of novels and stories and myths. And by itself, maybe isolated, it can be viewed as a book of philosophy, especially some, some of it. Uh, but the moment people, like the Jewish people and later the Christians and the, Mos uh, the, Mo the Muslims, they take this book, and they make it uh, a guide for themselves and for others and how to properly conduct themselves. And everything revolves around uh, this book as, as the, the ultimate authority. Uh, the moment it translates into again, systemic behavior, I think you could call it a religion. So Taoism, it's really tricky again, because it was merged with other belief systems as well. Uh, even today, there's a lot of people who in China who have Taoistic beliefs but they would never call themselves Taoist to somebody doesn't Taoist isn't really a term like Buddhist maybe it's just it's just uh, some like you wouldn't necessarily introduce yourself as um, Cartesian for example right you would just say you know I like on you know uh, you like I like the car right? I, you know you would just say the philosopher but you want uh, it wouldn't be a part of your identity as much I guess yeah so I think I hope that covers it a bit yeah, are there religious practices within Tao Taoism, such as you know Sunday church for Christianity? <laughs> so, so um, as the religion evolved after the Warring States period, um, then you can see start like ritualistic uh, behaviors again, which make it more more of a religion than just a philosophy philosophical system. And yes, there were again rituals, uh, you know. Uh, that came from this Taoism. Interestingly enough, uh, they had a lot of obsession with prolonging life. So a lot of Taoistic te texts about were just like ways for one to live longer, 
just to, to make your life longer. Because so a lot of a lot of it was just basically uh, how there's texts about even sexual intercourse is in, in certain ways to prolong your life. So that is uh, one part of it. But yeah, it's actually, again, it's quite distant from the actual text. If you read it now, especially without the chin and also Vajwangtse, it doesn't really concern itself with giving you concrete steps on, on how to behave. So the way it moves- Is that, mm -hmm. is that your, your main tip for longevity? Sexual intercourse? <laughs> in, certain, in certain ways, definitely, definitely. Again, again, <laughs> I, I don't know how much success the Chinese had uh, back then. <laughs> this is not my field of expertise, but it's, it's, I think it's recommended. You should ask your local doctor. This is not advice. This is <laughs> like with regret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I... I uh, so... Mm -hmm. No, no, go on. No, so... So I just... <laughs> go, 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 go. Okay. Now, just, I just want to, I just, again, everything I say has to be taken with a grain of salt just because uh, about, especially the text itself is, is really, really um, open for interpretation. So actually I've seen it done quite a lot that people just quote one line from the Tao Te Ching and it's really hard not to because there's a lot of really good quotes in it, but it's, 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 it can be, it, it has a multiplicity of meanings. And I think it was one of the, I think it was intended. I think that it's not supposed to be read in one way. Uh, I think there are, again, like you said, core themes and, and ideas within it that stayed fairly consistent uh, throughout the book and throughout the, the history it influenced. Uh, I, I, again, I think it, it has to do with my personal take on it is the metaphysics of it connecting of a Tao to nature and then the, um, of the, let's say, uh, disapproval of language as a method for acquiring knowledge and truth and, and the right way of living the right way, the right Tao. And then there's a mystical element to this philosophy, which I think is very important to note. And again, it, all this translates to political, um, you know, tips, if you will, uh, and guide, can you speak guidance. On that mis mm -hmm. Can you speak on that myst mystical aspect? Is that mm -hmm. where the spirituality mm -hmm. comes into play? Yeah, so definitely. So Taoistic, uh, the Taoistic uh, philosophy, if you will, is definitely, definitely uh, connected to a lot of spiritual and mystical uh, elements. And just because of the way, again, the Tao, this concept is, it's even, <laughs> we shouldn't even be talking about it because we really can't. Like, it doesn't matter how many words are used to describe it, you would never have a conception of it, okay? So just, just because, because, okay, so this is the word, but maybe the most fitting word for it would be ineffable ineffable in the sense that you cannot experience it. You cannot know truly what it is ever, right? So just because of that, just because of your, if uh, the core thing you believe is something inaccessible, that makes it, I think, automatically mystical, right? The mystical experience. And uh, you could- you could Being see, humble. Yes, and then it calls you to be really humble. And when you're humble, you are not really, uh, you know, you, again, you, you lose this arrogance, which, you know, Lao Tzu would be really happy if people would just, you know, let themselves <laughs> just relax a bit, chill a bit. Uh, and I think, I think a good way to look at it is William James. William James uh, is a, you know, very famous uh, psychologist slash philosopher in the, in the 20th century. And he wrote about the mystical experiences. And one of the criterion he gave was, again, ineffability and surrender. And this book definitely embodies this uh, themes, Matt. Again, it's so... 
unimaginable. It encompasses everything in the world, nature, culture, ourselves, our, our leaders, how we should behave. Everything is the Tao. We cannot understand it. We can only, again, uh, uh, draw down, surrender ourselves, understand that we are limited. We are limited in our understanding of it. We can only find hints of it, you know, in nature. Again, how water behaves. That's, that's, that's a guy. That's, that's a hint. Uh, emptiness. Emptiness is a very big uh, thing here to, to go and, again, not, not necessarily acquire more and more knowledge of the world, but actually withdraw within. And then you see, again, this uh, maybe more, I don't want to say Buddhist, because Buddhist is definitely different, but it definitely influenced Buddhism later on. Okay, in the Chinese philosophy that influenced uh, Zen Buddhism. But also like Buddhism, you know, emptiness is, again, this spiritual, uh, personal experience of, it's really hard to talk about it, but it's basically something which is experiential and you can never, it, it doesn't matter how much you talk about it. You could, you could never really, really uh, understand it. You, you may have just an inkling of what it is from personal experience. And that is why Taoism actually, I think it's for anyone interested in Buddhism or meditation for that matter is an excellent, excellent book because it really builds on solid foundation of uh, negating worlds. You know how if we connect this to modern day meditation, which is becoming really, really popular, you know, people, people love to meditate today, but I've seen really off, not awful, but let's say <laughs> some, some forms of meditation are, are basically closing your eyes and thinking, right? Which is, again, it's, it's odd. It's, 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 it's really odd. It's this marriage between uh, uh, the West and, and translations of Buddhist uh, scriptures and, and, and practices, right? So people tell you, close your eyes and think about, mm, think about, mm. that's, that is not, uh, what meditation is. Meditation is, again, originally, if you will, more to do with uh, focus, more to do with sensation, okay? And I think Taoism, with its negation of language, is a really useful tool to remember while meditating, right? Words are not your friend, necessarily. Words are something that can, is confusing. It's a source of pain. This is important. There's a source of confusion. There's a source of, of um, you know, this feeling, and this is, I think, the, the one thing I also, I think, a really good takeaway of this book is we have to, I think, divorce ourselves from this, this concept that words are a good description of reality, right? You call me Avishai, I call you Tom. Uh, we are using a camera. We are in front of each other. We have a moral system to guide us. These are all predicated on, on words. And Taoism basically just, just reminds you, I, will, I, I would say, that words are, for, for, we have no reason to think that words, especially words having to do with morality, about good and bad, are good indications of how we should behave. You know, words are just, you know, it's like a painting. If I, right, if I paint an apple, it's not an apple. It's a, it's a representation of it. But we often, I don't know about you, but I often forget that, you know, the word is the truth, it, it, but it's not. It's so <clears throat> divorced from it. And, and this, it's really, really important, I think, to remember just for, also for just like very practical, uh, um, you know, just self-help, if you will, because I think a lot of our source of misery in life is taking life too seriously. And I think that taking life too seriously results partly because we think that the words we use, the words people use on us um, to describe reality is reality, but it is not reality in the most basic, basic sense, in my opinion, it's experience, right? Reality is experience, and the Taoists would say reality is the Tao, right? It's just like, it's just like being in nature, 
being according to nature. That is it. That is reality. But we use words because we think we have this, again, illusion that more words <laughs> equals more truth. But I think it actually distances you. And that's what Lao Tzu would say. The more words you use, the more you have this like game of, uh, I have more theories. I've written more. I've read more. I've, I've done, if you translate it to modern day, I've done more research on the subject then it actually uh, makes you closer. But the fact is it actually confuses you and makes you see the reality like this, while the experiential reality, uh, which I think is the most important and most basic form of reality, how, how the world is uh, as, a, as, a, as in sensation, that, that, that is forgotten along the way because of this confusion of words and so on. So I hope this is <laughs> understand. I know it's a little- No, uh, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And so your expertise is in psychology. What, what are some of the psychological benefits of, as you say, negating the language um, and, and emptiness, if you will, um, in, mo in modern day application? Mm -hmm. That's a good, uh, good question. I think uh, we, we, when we met, uh, we, we spoke about this a bit, right? That uh, psychology, uh, if you go all the way back to Freud, uh, really assumes that therapy, and I think, again, there's a lot of evidence to think so, um, effective therapy uh, necessarily requires a person to discuss uh, the things he has repressed in the past, whether it be uh, abuse from parents or, or some peer uh, problems with his peers or a relationship or whatever has been bothering him. And the moment he talks about it, he opens it up, he opens it up, then uh, he could have better um, forms of dealing with his problem, right? And again, I think that's, that's a very effective way in many cases. I'm not here to negate it. I'm just here to represent an alternative way of looking at it, which is, again, more Eastern, more Taoist, and more Buddhist, which actually does not concern itself, again, with the stories, because even the narrative of I've been abused by my parents is a narrative. And even, uh, you know, I feel this way because that happened to me. You know, you can, you can go and play this game of what happened to us your entire life. Some people go to therapy for, for years and years and years, and it may help, it may not. But the fact is, as Taoists and Buddhists, I think would say, you're looking in the wrong direction, like looking at uh, the memories of what happened to us and uh, the words we use to describe these memories. It's just one form of dealing with these problems. Maybe a, a deeper, a method of dealing with these problems is by observing sensation and experience. So this is again, this is like, this is not, okay, now what I'm about to talk about is not strictly that Taoist, but again, Taoist, I think would, um, would back this up philosophically in different ways. But basically, uh, yeah, because if, if you look deeply, you know, even neurologically speaking, pain, whether it be pain from again, uh, a traumatic experience, or, or anything else. It's, it's just um, something that you can, you know, feel. It's a feeling that is entrenched within you. It does not really matter in a way what is the source of a pain, if there's a way to deal with that pain directly. And through Buddhist meditations, uh, I think Vipassana, Vipassana is mindfulness, um, especially the, the the goal is to watch, uh, you know, just observe sensation. And though if you can really focus, you can really watch sensation as it unfolds, you realize that 
um, this sensation isn't as you have thought it was. Because again, it's actually, it actually makes, makes a lot of intuitive sense because if, if you go, you know, you fall and you've, you know, you, your hand is hurt, all right? Your hand is hurting now. Talking about how much it hurts uh, would all do so much in order to help your pain, all right? It, it could help because it would, you know, it's framing, it will frame the experience of pain in a way that might be constructive or, or, this, or you know, negative. But it would, it is one way of dealing with the pain. A more intuitive way to deal with the pain is to observe it directly, right? Instead of telling a story about what happened to you, you directly look at it. You look at the feeling of what it makes you uh, sense. And again, this is, <laughs> I am no expert, but it is, I, I truly believe that people that have a lot, a lot of experience with meditation, long meditations, uh, with a lot of focus involved, uh, can see pain as what it is and Pain for what it is, is basically sensation. And this is, now I'll connect it back to Taoism. I think Taoism personally has been huge, huge benefit just for the negation of two specific words and that is good and bad. Because for the longest time, my philosophy was pain is bad, pleasure is good. Okay, and then I got, you know, I think most people would assume that is the case, right? Maximizing pleasure, hooray and <laughs> minimizing unnecessary pain. Utilitarian perspective. Exactly. The utilitarian perspective makes a lot of sense. And again, it can be an egotistical thing, but you can still think that, okay, I want to live a good life, so I do whatever causes me pleasure more and more and try to minimize the amount of bad experiences I had. And again, bad means uh, uh, painful. It makes, it makes sense, right? But then, reading this book and really getting deep into meditation, I remember I had this meditation the uh, session one time where I, I was feeling extremely, extremely painful. My, I was meditating for hours and my, my foot fell asleep and it was extremely, extremely, extremely bad. <laughs> like I, I just wanted it to stop, but I couldn't because you know, you have to keep going. And then I just looked at the pain and then I really thought about it. And I realized that this, again, uh, marriage, this intuitive marriage we have within our culture, but also within our bi biology, but especially our culture, that pain equals uh, bad is, is nonsensical when you look at it from a natural perspective. Because, you know, as far as the universe is concerned, your pain has no difference than any other sensation. Sadness, happiness, uh, pleasure, all these are just different sensations. It's a different way of thinking, but uh, relating. But from an evolutionary perspective, isn't pain in in our bodies for a reason isn't that to sort of as a survivalistic yeah, perspective to escape yeah, animals or to escape danger definitely but just because something has evolutionary sense or or served us in some way does not mean that we should keep on uh, uh using it especially when it causes us so so much pain you know again, not pain again uh, uh, <laughs> so, again that's the thing you see but the words we use even are so deeply entrenched that pain is bad. I can use it interchangeably, right? But you're right, it has evolutionary sense. Of course it does. You know, pleasure obviously would make you, evolutionary speaking, more successful. But again, I, if you want to talk about evolution. You're saying that's a choice. You're saying a choi that's a choice to let that affect you negatively from a psychological perspective. I think it is. I think, I think definitely, definitely it is. And I think that uh, this book really uh, talks about it in the sense that it talks about the distance between good and bad. And it asks the question, what, what is the distance between good and bad? Which is, you know, it's interesting because 
again, and this is the back to the yin and yang, two sides of the same coin, right? You just, um, you, with time, you, you go around and you, you have a bad experiences, a painful experience, and you equate it with being bad. But if you just look at the painful, if you look at pain as an experience, nothing more, just experience, just a sensation, just as something that happens, it actually alleviates a lot of the pain, a lot of the badness, you know? And I think, and I, how I try to conduct myself is actually to invite pain when it arises, because it would definitely arise. Like people, no person is gonna live life without pain, especially nowadays with everything going on with COVID. Pain is all around us in many, many different forms. Socially, uh, losing loved ones, uh, economic pain, uh, just like just like the effect of the COVID, like now it's horrible. Again, it, it doesn't have to be COVID. Like life is full of suffering. <laughs> nobody, nobody needs a lesson to know that. You just you just encounter it, and just like um, you know, allocating all of our effort into maximizing pleasure and minimizing these like painful experiences is a losing game. It's a losing game because we will definitely, definitely, without any doubt, encounter a lot of pain. Everybody I know of is going to get old. And old age comes with a lot of pain. And you're going to encounter people you love die. Everybody's going to experience death. Everybody's going to experience death around them. That is going to happen. There is no question about it. Trying to avoid it ca cannot succeed in any way. So uh, the smarter maybe approach is with acceptance of pain. And again, not necessarily going into, you know, like some people, they go into like these fasting uh, retreats and they, you know, they choose and also like some Taoists, but uh, and also they, they try to have like very painful experiences just because again, they want, I think, to separate uh, uh, this intuitive, again, it's also physiologically between uh, this intuitive marriage between uh, pain and, and badness and something which we do not like. But again, when next time you, you have a painful experience, whether it be, you know, you fall down or somebody hurts you uh, somebody says something bad about you, your conception of reality shatters because the one you loved just left you, right? And that's a painful, painful experience. Um, one thing you could do, and it's, again, it's, it's, and if you combine it with practice or meditation, it might be more effective. One thing you could do is look at this experience of pain and not say, oh, this pain is so bad. I'm trying to run away from that. I'll try to escape it. Instead, observe the pain very, very, very closely look at its characteristics and maybe you know look at it and, and say oh this is experience this is this is life this is uh being in the most basic way and it's not bad it's not something that i want to go away it's just it's just a part of life and then that i know it's, it's, it's one thing to say that and actually when you're actually feeling pain to actually divorce it from being bad from something you want to run away from but this is again back to psychoanalysis a lot of our pain is a result of us pushing away um, things we have to deal with, right? We all have terrible, terrible experiences all the time. And our, uh, the way we, we choose to deal with that is, you know, making up something to run away from that, whether it be, you know, something we come up with or anything else. Dealing with pain, looking at it, inviting it over, looking at it as, as something that is necessarily going to be there actually allows us to accept it and go on. <laughs> so, okay, so we, uh, yeah. On, on the um, negation of, of language, I find this really interesting. When you see monks 
uh, on TV, whether they're Taoists or, or Buddhists or, or whatever, whatever, whatever they are, when they take vows of silence, is that trying to negate themselves from the association between reality and linguistics? Is, is that is that why they're doing this to try to achieve that state of just sensations rather than ambiguity uh, derived from language? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think uh, definitely. I, I went uh, only on one silent retreat in the past. It was for ten days, and again, I think it also puts you in a different state of mind completely, just because you're also socially isolated. Because again, okay, so you can't really look at the negation of language without the negation of culture and and society, right? Because when you you're around people, you're, the way you're going to communicate with them is by words. And these words become your reality. Okay? And by retreating to you know, a mountain, <laughs> to be alone, for example, really allows you to, because you're isolated, to not let other forms of reality take uh, root in your being. Right? Like the reality becomes, like you say, sensation and not language. And that is, I think, a, a, again, a truer, if you will, version of reality. And I think, again, when it talks about the benefits of mental health, um, the ability to go back to sensation when you need to, when you encounter something which is truly dreadful and not, not only rely on social uh, forms of reality uh, can actually be extremely, extremely beneficial. And definitely, I think that, you know, yeah, retreats are, are meant to, to focus on, on that, yeah. From a political uh, perspective, this, this like idea of um, pacifism or, or passiveness, um, is, does this allow for the opportunity uh, for another state or nation or even an individual to take advantage of other people? So if someone is in the mindset of going with the flow, if someone is not in that mindset and is in more of an authoritarian uh, or opportunistic mm-hmm. uh, mindset, does Taoism sort of allow for this abuse of power or conquering of others from mm-hmm. a state level or just even in everyday mm-hmm. life? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good point. Um, that's a really good point. I think, again, it's hard to say um, exactly because, again, the difference between this, looking at this book as a, it's a guide for the starting leader and a personal guide for mental health, it's quite different. Um, I think, I think, yes, I think that it's, this uh, way of being uh, allows room for exploitation. But then again, <laughs> you use exploitation as a word which is necessarily bad, which is like, that's, but again, if, if your goal is basically to survive well enough with nature, what do you care if you're being exploited? What do you care if somebody else you know, comes in and, and takes over your country? Again, this, this philosophy, uh, its goal is, is to pacify things as much as possible, if you will. And if you are actually more diplomatic about it and not you know, full of your egoistic ambitions of conquering the whole of China or anywhere else, the, the chances you might survive an attack by greater forces are just much higher. And uh, this book, it's actually interesting because this book actually also tells uh, the leader how to um, rule the state within. So actually, I think it actually talks about um, lowering, lowering the, the amount of, of a state actually is involved in people's lives. So actually, it says, it says on one hand, don't, don't make the people smarter. Don't, give them, don't, give them, don't let them you know, make them th- smarter because then they might come and you know, uh, uh, call into question your authority. I think that's uh, the implication here. 
So on one hand, it says, make your people, you know, do their thing, not, not. But it also says, do not, uh, as, a, as a leader, do not, again, do not uh, feed your ego and go out and, you know, build statues of yourself. Uh, just because uh, there's no need to do that. And um, it, actually, it actually does the opposite of what you want. Because what you want at the end of the day is existence according to nature. And nature, you know, if you, <laughs> if you go to nature, no bird has a pursuit of fame. No, no, uh, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> no, there's no bug that it's goal. <laughs> you don't find a fly saying, I will, I will, I will become an influencer, <laughs> an Instagram influencer, right? There's no, we are literally the only animal, right? Looking for this really twisted, extremely twisted form of happiness, which is um, wealth. Wealth is such a weird concept, you know, just like possessions. That is so odd. Like the fact that we take it for granted, like, I don't know, but you, but my dog, my dog has like, okay, my dog is very possessive, but usually, right? We barely have, barely any, anything in the animal kingdom has any, any form of possession whatsoever. But we, especially today, are so, so attached to our things. It becomes part of our identity. And when we lose something, money, a phone, uh, fucking a picture, uh, you know, we have this obsession with pictures today, especially with, you know, social media. That is our, us, that is our social identity. And when we lose it, we feel pain as if we got our arm cut off, which is odd. It's so odd. And again, it's so stupid because at the end of the day we just make ourselves much more vulnerable because it's not our identity it's not our life it's not our life our life our, our true personhood if you will is first of all maybe there's no personhood to begin with there's, there's just existence there's just sensation everything else is is a narrative we construct and as a result of the way our cultures have been uh built up throughout history and just just Again, with, if you look, if you observe, if you go, I, I challenge you, go find an animal, <laughs> look at it. I, I, sometimes, I, I do this with, with cats. I look at a cat <laughs> and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get into, into its head. You know, what is a cat? What does my cat want? You know, what, what's his goal <laughs> in life? And he doesn't, I don't, I don't think he's like planning his academic future, his financial future. Right? It's just his goal is basically. <laughs> his taxes. Like, his taxes uh, <laughs> to get the girl he wants. Right? I don't. No, he has he has his ambitions barely they basically come down to right sleeping getting the food maybe enjoying some you know, nice fuzzy time with its owner and that's that's life that is life existence in in the now right but without any of those really weird socially constructed goals which again are somewhat necessary to live today as a human being like it's really hard to not have ambitions because then you 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 lose your way uh, I think there's a lot of place still to call into question. Um, the, so to, mm -hmm. Does it sort of encourage the death of the ego? Definitely. And this materialistic um, absorption? I would definitely, yeah. I, I'd like this uh, way of phrasing it. Yeah, definitely. The death of the ego is definitely something uh, that Taoists would uh, get behind. Just for the fact that... Yeah. Why, why, why do we assume that? You know, and again, the thing is, I, I'm not to be a hypocrite. I'm I'm materialistic as hell. Like I'm as materialistic <laughs> as anyone else here, and it's really hard to become like uh, to live up to Taoist standards or even Buddhist standards. But still, even even on an intellectual basis, I think being familiar with concepts from Taoism and Buddhism um, are extremely useful when when stuff when inevitably uh, 
our Western philosophical systems of you know, promising us happiness fail us and they're doomed to famous because success, again, it's a cliche, but success um, in many forms does not guarantee uh, um, happiness. And often the obsession with success, wealth, uh, getting higher, getting more things, getting, you know, what, accomplishing your dreams is actually every day a source of, uh, of, of troubles and misery. So the alternative, which is, you know, be like your cat <laughs> a bit, exist, <laughs> <laughs> exist as, as water exists, just flowing. I, I, love, I love a metaphor with water, by the way, water as well. Just like water, because it's, it's also very humble, water. Water has... It just, it, just, it just goes wherever. In the shittiest sewers, you know, water just goes. Just whenever it's being pushed, it just goes with it. It doesn't fight. It doesn't, it just continues forward. And, uh, and again, uh, involuntarily and accepting its fate. This is also, I think, a big theme there. It being willing to accept your fate as a limited human being, you know, someone who won't become uh, the next, uh, you know, famous uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is, is, is actually really good for, <laughs> for mental health because we know that um, what we have in, 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 in this really limited life is what we're going to get. And by focusing on, on the true beauty, there's a lot of beauty in this, uh, the true beauty of, of nature, of reality within sensations, I think it is a faster and more secure path towards uh, lasting happiness it, what you're saying about how pain is somewhat of a, a construct and that you only let that affect you negatively if you choose to in taoism mm -hmm. what about uh, positive emotions are they something that taoists will also look at as uh something passive and not fully enjoy their positive potential emotional benefits of as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. or are you sort of plateauing <laughs> Or right. do you still have the benefits of those positive emotional uh, mm -hmm. interactions? Yeah. So first of all, I just I just want to. It's partly my fault that I, I I spoke with Buddhists. Maybe if 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 they were Taoists, Taoists do not go into details, um, especially like the, the early works like Tao Te Ching does not talk about mental health, about positivity. It does not go into details. This is all uh, uh, Buddhists, Buddhist uh, okay. philosophy, which I I made it maybe seem like it's Taoist and added some of my own take on it. So, okay. Maybe differentiate where the two break off and then right, right. So, we'll so, jump so back Taoist, into the question. Yeah. So Taoist is again, it's more of a philosophical work about uh, good and bad meanings, words, nature, um, the foolishness of trying to acquire, um, you know, happiness through material means, but it does not go into the, details of what happens with x and and y it just it just um buddhist buddhism is much more much more full of um what would you say works uh and and methods are concerned with um your your type of question and so what you're saying uh again i think the Taoists, as far as I know, especially the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuang Tzu, they do not offer a concrete uh, answer to what you're saying because it's a good, good question. Because what happens when you know you get something good, right? When, what happens when uh, something really positive happens in your life? Do you also um, differentiate it uh, from from goodness? Right? Is is good a pleasure? And what happens when you? I think I think personally, 
that, and this is again more more Buddhist than Taoist. Uh, you know, pleasure. Uh, this is a, the Buddha came up with this. This is not me. Pleasure. <laughs> I'm not thinking. Don't try credit the Buddha, mate. <laughs> uh, pleasure, pleasure is actually just as a big source of 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 long term suffering as as pain is because pleasure um, includes attachment, and like we said, that you can atta- be attached to material things. Then pleasure, even even of family, friends, loved ones even though they are a source of attachment, which, although not in the moment, will eventually uh, result in, in a lot of pain, which is not necessary. And that is a very good question. I remember, I remember when I was in this retreat, I really felt um, I had this like, really difficult moment where I, I was basically isolated. I didn't see my, my friends and family for a very long time. And I, I felt, uh, I, all I felt was attachment to them. I felt like I was mm. missing them dearly, dearly, dearly. And I, I couldn't square it off with this need to let go, with this need to lose attachment and just exist in sensation, <clears throat> especially when you're isolated, right? And you just want to be with other people. So I remember that I was talking to this, just like I, you have five minutes a day in this retreat to talk with uh, your guru. And I was asking, what should I do? And, and she, she said that basically what you should do is, you know, just... Uh, if, if, you really, if you really care about them, if you really love some, them, your family, your friends, then you do have to uh, detach. You do have to make this effort to become whole with yourself when it comes to your own sensations and feelings. And I think that is really, really good because just, just start, when you start and think of the amount of pain and suffering caused by um, love and attachment to other people, you, you just see the harm of it, right? So, you know, every broken heart is a result of loving. Every... Uh, sorrow lasting for years of, of a, a parent who died is a result of attachment towards a parent. Uh, a lot of the uh, pain we have just because we you know, think about how death is going to look like is partly due to the attachment we have to life as, as a concept. Uh, but detaching from these concepts, or at least, again, because I think you could still have pleasure and love in a way where it is more healthy and does not make you uh, attached to them in this like really uh, uh, problematic way, you know, you could still enjoy life and realize it's going to end. You can still, uh, you know, yeah. I, so this is a spectrum. Yeah, exactly. You could, you could, it's like, you know, you, when you watch, um, when, when you dance, like when you dance, when you hear a song, you're not, you, you don't, the song doesn't become less good because you know, it's going to end. You know, you're enjoying the song for what it is at the moment. Right? It's just, it's just good. It's just good. You like it. And you don't think it's going to end, it's, so it sucks. You know, the same goes for everything else, right? So you Depends have a, how good the song is, I guess. <laughs> but so as to more pleasure, more obviously pleasurable moments, right? So when a pleasurable moment does arise, uh, my take on it, and a Buddhist take on it would be maybe to look at it as you look at pain. So observe the pleasurable moment, but also be tentative to not... Um, be attached to it and that is an extremely 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 difficult thing to actually achieve um this is can only be done with really i think careful and years of meditation and practice this is it's so hard it's so it's so hard because the moment you have a good thing you only want all you want in the world is to keep it and being able to of course, hmm? of course i said yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's so so hard um to really let go but uh it's only i think through this because this is like also the 
a difference between, you know, <laughs> actually, I started looking at my playlist recently, my Spotify playlist, and I realized all of the songs are, are about love and heartbreak and everybody's like fucking obsessed. If you would meet any one of those like singers in real life, you would say, you have a problem, mate. You should, you know, all, <laughs> all, all of them are just like unbelievably attached to everyone. Like the, the last, the, the love they have currently or the love they have just lost. And there's always pain, <laughs> always in all of those songs, even the happy songs, you know, oh, I love you so much. It, you know, you know, these songs are, uh, the moment something bad is going to happen, but it's going to be a horrible song, you know, and, and you just hear that and you say, oh, fuck, that is a lot of, a lot of attachment in, in, uh, in our culture in, in the West. And then you go to, you know, acoustic songs, okay, and then you don't have, again, you don't have these, like, words telling you to attach to someone, this obsession, and you have more, again, like, you know, mantras, mantras are basically sounds that are meant to just, you know, be there, be in the moment, uh, be in the sensation and in the sound without, you know, all the songs are like uh, songs with lyrics in the West, they are talking about future of some sort. Right? They're talking about uh, extreme love that is going to, you know, happen. But I think, I think it's so, uh, so problematic as again, it's life is, life is shit. <laughs> it's shit again, in the shit in a very good way. You, the, the faster you realize life is, is, it's gonna, it's gonna involve some sort of pain going on. The sooner you are accepting of that pain, and when pleasure does arise, you, you, you can look at it, you can observe it, but you should, I think, be careful um, to the meaning you attach to it, and be willing to accept that it's gonna, it's gonna change, it's gonna end. And I think that is a very, very positive thought, actually. I think that, and, and this is, again, this is not Taoist, this is, more Buddhist and the term they use for this, this is Aniche. Aniche is in Pali and it basically means impermanence. This is the law of the universe according to the Buddhists uh, in, in the Vipassana meditation according to Gwenka. And, and they basically say impermanence is the basic law of everything. And I think similarly, I think Taoists would agree with that. Change, you know, change and just the fact that everything is going to continue according to nature. The only thing that is guiding us is not our own wants, not the wants of our family members, our culture, our leaders. The only true reality there is, is the reality of nature. And as things unfold, we, have, we need to realize we most of the time do not have control over it. And our obsession with control is a source of misery. And just realizing that things are going to change and whether it be death, of ourselves, of ourselves, someone else. That is, that is actually something that, you know, it's actually, I don't want to say wonderful, but I want to say uh, um, just- Natural. Natural in the most basic uh, essential way, anything is natural. You know, it's, if, if things do not happen, do not change, then that is not life. Change is necessary for life and you cannot change it. <laughs> you cannot change the fact that things change, right? I don't want to and, and I think that is very liberating to know that. So how much, how much does uh, Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism yeah. um, represent the difference between Eastern standards and ethics and morals to Western, uh, Western morals? And from a religious perspective as well. How, how different are they? That's what you're asking? 
does do these these values are not very western it's quite contrast to what we've traditionally mm -hmm. valued in western philosophy and western religions mm -hmm. um is that still representative today and how would you define the basic differences between traditional uh values in the east to in the mm -hmm. west Okay, that is a huge question. Because <laughs> that's course, basically, yeah. basically two, two civilizations. <laughs> and again, like the, the differences, but there's so many differences between Taoism and Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism and Buddhism and Confucianism. It would be just, I am not allowed even to make these comparisons. I will still do that. <laughs> but just, just for the sake of... <laughs> and, and first of all, it, it is worth noting that again, since there are communism uh, in, in China in the last, uh, in the 20th century, a lot of things have That was going to be my next question. All right, so a lot of things have changed with the Cultural Revolution and a lot of the same old, um, you know, traditions and moral system have changed quite drastically. Um, but that's uh, something maybe for later. Uh, but I would, okay, so again, we, we have to separate it. So Confucianism, uh, if, if you have to really boil it down, it would go to piety and, and familial and uh, societal norms. So basically, with a Confucian, by, by the way, of, uh, if you read Confucius, which is again, actually quite short and quite lovely to read, very smart person giving you nice advice for life. It's quite different in, 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 from more Western oriented uh, um, philosophical works where it really puts you inside a community. So it actually tells you what kind of person you should be as a son or a father or, or a citizen, you know, you should be moral to others. And morality in relation to others is more of a Confucianist thing. And you can see that, you know, um, the respect um, you have in Asian cultures to family um, is, <laughs> there is nothing to be compared with the way people look at their family uh, in the West, right? So in the West, um, the way your relationships, your relationship with your parents is very negotiable, right? You are an individual. When you're 18 in the United States, you would leave your parents. Um, you know, you, you just, they are, you know, friends of yours with maybe they can help you. You love them. But again, it's all, it's all, it's, there's no uh, ob obligation, I would say, after a certain point. And again, not in, in the same way, because when you speak to, again, this is true for many of different countries in Asia. Right, the way they speak about their parents, it's a part of their everyday life uh, out of obligation. It's not out of love because I love my, my parents. You love them, obviously, but the, you are obliged to be there for them, to support them. And actually Confucius talks about if one of your parents dies, you have to mourn them for three years. That is a long time to mourn your parents. You, you must, you know, um, the, the, the amount of respect they have for the elderly is enormous. And the amount of respect they have for the past and tradition is is huge. Um, so that is, I, mean, I would say, Confucianism. Oh, terrible, terrible summary, but some of the core principles in a nutshell. Um, Taoism and Buddhism, again, I think they share more because, again, Taoism really influenced Zen Buddhism in China. So, and again, the, the philosophies are fairly parallel in many respects. And um, the way they perceive morality as opposed to the West. Again, the West itself has a lot of, um, you know, de you know, debate on what is moral <laughs> and what is right and what is, so it's actually, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid of making any generalizations um, more than I've already had made because <laughs> I've made quite a bit. <laughs> no, no. So, um, so maybe you could, could you make a question later more 
specific, if you will. Okay, so uh, let's say everyday values. So um, maybe uh, the value of the ego, the value of capitalism, mm -hmm. of uh, technological progression, mm -hmm. and always taking the next step forward right. uh, is a key attribute to Western Western beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. So with this, uh, what you're talking about with with Taoism, and also mm -hmm. In, in Buddhism and Confucianism, obviously mm -hmm. they're all very different, but there seems to be this common theme of more pass passive acceptance yeah. and less of a, less of a materialistic uh, value. Mm -hmm. Is that an accurate um, description? I, I would say I would say it's it's quite good what you just said. I think it was uh, it's fairly accurate. Uh, again, if we if we allow ourselves to be uh, as generalizing, because obviously you'd find, especially today, a lot of very materialistic, uh, career-focused, uh, you know, moral values in, in China, for example. You, you go to China, they would love to talk with you about money and career. And that is, of course. <laughs> so obviously... I'm talking yeah. pre-1940s. Pre, uh, so, okay, so yeah, so if you, <laughs> so if you go back uh, in time uh, to these core values... Uh, again, if you look at ta again Taoism, I think it's worth noting again. It's it's not um, it influenced a lot of um, the relig again religion is a problematic word, but it influenced uh, the culture in China a lot. But if you are like really into Taoism, it will very uh, select few. You know, to become a monk, not everyone's a monk. You know, very few people can be uh, allowed to 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 be in this position, right? So, and it's not for everyone, right? To ponder the mysteries of the universe and, you know, meditate all day. You know, people, most people, um, they, you know, they have work. They have to live life normally um, to get things done. So it's not, so Taoism, I don't think it was, you know, it's, it's not shared by everyone in, in China, especially today, but that's just a side note. Um, the, the basic um, comparison you've just made between neoliberal values of, um, you know, materialism of going forward in life of acquiring more stuff of accomplishment i think accomplishment is a very interesting thing because accomplishment you know people would maybe agree with you you know materialism is bad but accomplishment is like it's pretty much a consensus i necessarily think materialism is always bad hmm? i'm sorry i don't necessarily think that materialism is always bad okay, okay. but i i think it's you find more people that are willing to say yeah materialism is a little uh, too much in our society i, I think that is not that sure. extreme but accomplishment i think the word accomplishment is actually it's there's more consensus about accomplishment being something positive all right so if you accomplish someone something that is lit, almost the literal definition of of being praiseworthy all right that is the goal of life you Kids go up in the hopes of achieving something, and if you, if you, if you decide to raise your kid as a Taoist, he would not accomplish much. Let me tell you, like the biggest Taoist there is, nobody knows who he really was or what was his real name, you know. So it's like, and again, it's not the goal. The goal um, is is not to again not not to make you your name last because again, it's it's a delusion. It's a delusion to think that. You know, if you accomplish a lot and your name will be remembered, uh, then you're, you would survive in one form or another. Uh, that, is, that, is a, that is a weird, I think, uh, assumption that we have that we should make, you know, something that 
outlives us because it's we are not gonna outlive our life this is we, our yeah. own existence is what we're doing now and uh but it's still in, in the west like we kids go up uh with this sense of i have to accomplish i have to be something that uh i am you know worthy of my peer groups and then i can you know i can stand out and people would look at me in a certain way we are obviously we obviously care about again it's not obviously the west it's everywhere you know as a social being you obviously want to be uh, as recognized as best as you could but the thing is taoists they have a lot of anecdotes actually about people who are very ugly or very unsocial <laughs> and very quiet people and they are the heroes of taoism are actually these kinds of people the ugly quiet person in the room is actually the, the most taoist of this like really good looking uh, you know clever person making everyone laugh because if if the uh, this guy which does not concern himself with popularity with um you know uh positive impressions by others and, and their approval seeking their approval you know this guy would find his life much more peaceful if he's you know a true taoist and a true believer uh, of his ways but this guy the guy which is you know making everyone laugh you know um he might enjoy that and he, and he will and maybe he'll have a lot of moments like that throughout his life but after those moments are done for he would be seeking uh to accomplish more to do more to impress more and the thing is we are all this guy we are all we all want to be this i think uh person that can be the center of attention can uh, be looked at with um appraisal and this game this race of never ending um is is just um I'm repeating myself, but it's a losing game. And um, the, the sooner we realize that, but again, we could, we could still succeed. It doesn't, you know, I have a friend, he's, he's awesome. He's, he's, he's accomplished so much in his life, but he kept this fairly Taoist, Buddhist uh, point of view. And he never, it never seemed like he really got attached to everything he did, which was awesome. Because then, you know, when, when he didn't get as far as he wanted, he wasn't, you know, severely depressed. Because he didn't lose something, he didn't. It's it's not like he he attached his identity. He wasn't identified with his accomplishments, and it was really wonderful to see. That's a that's a good um, modern day application without having to radically be a Taoist, but to right. apply a good concept right. realistically. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I yeah I, I yeah I think uh, I, I, you, <laughs> there's this beautiful beautiful uh, scene in Bojack Horseman if you've seen that. Uh, basically, just like uh, this guy's uh, horses win, wins an Oscar, and it's like something he's been looking for his entire life. And it's, the, one, the moment itself is wonderful, but literally the next day, <laughs> life is shit again because these like moments of highlights we're all seeking, they, they happen one day. <laughs> maybe maybe the happiness you know would last a week, but you would definitely go back to your default mode. And so instead of seeking constant highlights, again, a better strategy would be to, you know deal with uh with everyday life and see accomplishments again as nice wonderful things uh but not to obsess over them as much how how did the rise of communism uh and maoism and the influence of the soviet union um change taoism Mm -hmm. in china and just i guess the general cultural outlook in china Mm -hmm. in the 20th century okay so again this is like actually not not my field of expertise by any by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, from from what I've read and the 
the people I've spoken with, uh, what happened basically that um, in the, um, during the years Mao came into power and the Cultural Revolution basically attempted to forget anything related to Taoism. And uh, what happened was a lot of temples were destroyed and a lot of, a lot of very, very important uh, scriptures and, and old texts by Taoists were, were destroyed and, and it's actually very tragic, along with uh, many other tragic occasions in 20th century Chinese history. Um, now, since then, uh, Taoism has been resurrected, if you will, and after Mao had died, um, Taoism is still considered a part of Chinese culture, and it, they are taught, I, I've spoken with Chinese people um, who are, they, they know about uh, Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching, because they learn it at school, so it's, it's actually um, a part of the culture. Um, again, it's, it's, some people obviously have more affinity than less. And it's interesting because it's, again, it's, it's Taoism. It's never Taoism alone, a part of their identity. It's always uh, with it's like interesting interactions with Confucianism and Buddhism, and also uh, nowadays with communism, right? So, and also this weird hybrid of sort of capitalism, materialistic, you know, um, uh, obsession with success and wealth. So you, you speak with a Chinese person, <laughs> and my sense of it is neither any one of those things. It's not a, it's not a strict Taoist or Confucius or, or capitalist or communist. He's like a weird combination of everything. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard. I, I, would, I would be very careful of saying um, that Taoism uh, has left China, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's, it's, its influence is as significant as you might expect, because obviously things have changed a lot. It's not, it's not a cultural uh, thing. And even Taoism, because of its weird nature of being, you know, something that always wants to, it, it was never meant to be a religion to begin with. It never meant to be a, a systematic way of living. It became so just because, you know, people read it and loved it and wanted to live by according to its, uh, you know, principles. But it, again, there's a lot of people who live by Taoistic principles and they would never call themselves Taoists. So that is also important. So it's really hard. It's even a big question how many Taoists exist. Because if you ask a Taoist, if he's a Taoist, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say so. So that is also a problem of quantifying this uh, phenomenon nowadays. Okay. Awesome, Amishai. Thanks um, so much for, for talking about Taoism. I thought this really informative. Was there anything else you wanted to speak about? Um, there was one thing. Oh, yes. So again, if, if somebody has survived the conversation thus far and is curious, I, I would... <laughs> <laughs> but there's two sources I would, I would point to. And the first is obviously the Tao Te Ching, the actual text uh, to begin with, which is wonderful, wonderful, fascinating, transformative in many, many ways. Very short. And you can find it online for free too. Also, uh, not, uh, not um, even a better source maybe, or just as equally great, I guess, for anyone interested, is uh, Alan Watts. Alan Watts was, um, was one of the first people to really... Uh, deal with Taoism directly, and he is uh, he, he did a lot, a lot of lectures online during the 70s. And if you Google, you know, write his name on YouTube, you would find literally hundreds of hours of his lectures, and they are just incredible. They are 
really deep and fascinating to listen to whenever whatever you're doing and definitely definitely his take on taoism buddhism comparison with uh the west and western values is invaluable and just just a wonder to listen so that is definitely something i would recommend so alan watts as well so that is uh, i guess uh, have a show thank you mate thanks again make thank sure to follow the rocky road post on twitter youtube and instagram yes do that thanks guys